Hello, uh, welcome. Uh, my name's Ian Lewins, one of the consultants in the Children's Emergency Department in Derby, um, and I'm your host this afternoon. And I am delighted, really delighted, to be joined this afternoon uh, by Dr. Chris Van Tulliken, who's an infectious diseases doctor at uh, UCL Hospital, a scientist at UCL, a BBC presenter, and probably most importantly of all, what my kids consider to be a proper doctor, um, because he presents Operation Ouch. Uh, Chris, <laughs> good afternoon. Good afternoon. Oh, that's embarrassing. No, you, you, so you're a proper doctor and I just sort of muck about according to my kids. So, so that, that, that's the influence that you have. <laughs> it's, it's nice to hear that. I mean, it's, very, it's very nice that, that children of colleagues watch the show. You know, it's made by a very big team of lovely people, so... I should take very little credit, but it's nice to hear. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Um, so I've personally followed Chris on Twitter for a while and most recently been really interested in the bits and pieces that you've been writing about in the national press and that you're now going to talk about at uh, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine uh, conference coming up in October, the scientific conference. And I saw that the topic uh, that you're giving a keynote about is the overdiagnosis and industry influence in paediatric medicine. Before we sort of go into that a bit, why have you become interested in that specifically? Well, I made a, a programme for the BBC called The Doctor Who Gave Up Drugs. And it was uh, the series one was about uh, conditions and treatments in adult medicine where we think the evidence base is poor and where industry may be involved in overdiagnosis. And uh, the series did well. It was nominated for a BAFTA, and we focused on kind of some low-hanging fruit. The BBC wanted, uh, they, they for various reasons, are trying to skew younger with the audience, and so wanted a program on paediatrics. And I said, I, I thought actually paediatric medicine, from my very limited recollection, was was better regulated than adult medicine, and probably we wouldn't find much overdiagnosis. But in researching. Uh, for a treatment that I never thought would get made, we came across really several examples where we felt uh, there was was evidence that treatments were being given that were not very well evidenced uh, and that industry had significant, often quite subtle, um, subtle influence. So we looked at antidepressant use in children, um, ADHD uh, and Calpol, specifically brand Calpol, and uh, non-IgE mediated cow's milk protein allergy in a, an exclusively breastfed infant. So, and part of the program was also prompted by the fact I have a two-year-old myself um, who became quite a big part of that cow's milk allergy story. So there's, there's a personal side to it as well, by the sound of it. Yeah, yeah, Lyra. I mean, uh, I don't know if you want me to uh, briefly. Lyra developed um, very severely inflamed discoid patches of eczema on both cheeks and and the extensive surfaces of both arms and legs and um we went through the usual tour through social media mum's groups online uh, saw the gp uh, i misdiagnosed it as an adult infectious diseases doctor i started treating it as a <laughs> tinny infection so i'll i'll fess that up and uh, <laughs> just for anyone who's interested it, it it does it does that cream does make eczema a lot worse um, yeah. so i lost the confidence of my wife early on and very quickly we we were told by friends colleagues gp that that this was likely to be a dairy allergy so we even as i was researching the program 
uh, the part of the program where we were looking at cow's milk protein allergy and its potential to be overdiagnosed and the influence of industry over that as a diagnosis, we were excluding dairy from my wife's diet while she was breastfeeding. Yeah. Um, so I became, uh, it was interesting how even as, as someone who I hope, I'm a scientist, I'm a clinician, I'm aware of the biases in evidence, uh, I was still able to be to be sucked in into a thing that I think was completely unnecessary and we made our own lives very much harder. And I think, you know, that that's, you say sort of as a scientist, somebody with a lot of knowledge, but actually, you know, the, the people that I see on a day-to-day basis who maybe don't have those sort of degree level training, um, uh, there's a lot of, as you say, the, there's quite a bit of influence that goes on. And I think, as you say, we in paediatrics feel that uh, we're not influenced, we don't get influenced, but I think you, you sort of felt quite differently. Well, I think there is a vast literature on, on, on two phenomena, actually. First of all, it's unequivocal that we are influenced as clinicians and scientists by as little as a, as a little pad of paper or a, or a ballpoint pen. That's yeah. enough to bias. We, we come very cheap. Um, once industry starts sponsoring our research programs, our institutions, our educational events, and bringing us to conferences at which we become key opinion leaders, um, then then their influence is, is overwhelmingly powerful. But the, the second phenomenon, which is a little bit more subtle, is that it's very well evidenced that none of us think we are influenced. So um, there are quite a few papers on this, that the, the social scientists and the lawyers got the hang of, of all this being a problem long before medicine did. But there are some, there's, a, there's a nice study that shows that whilst 61% of doctors believe that other clinicians can be influenced um uh, sorry 61 percent of clinicians believe that promotions don't influence their own practice only 16 percent believe the same about other people so there's a paradox obviously both those statements can't be true most of us believe we aren't influenced but most of us believe that others are so we're hypocrites in short yes and you know the, the 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 relationship between medicine and industry has sort of long been established, and certainly in my career, things have my perception maybe is that things have changed significantly, but maybe not quite as significantly as as I think. So, my example, thinking about drug reps and those sorts of things, uh, certainly as a junior doctor, we all used to get taken out as the firm. Yeah. We'll go out for dinner, spending quite a lot of money. And that's been significantly reined in now so that from my perspective as a paediatric department, we will meet with a drug rep for a lunchtime meeting once a fortnight and it's a few sandwiches from M&S. Right. Maybe so that the amount of money that's being spent in one outlay is significantly less. But maybe the influence hasn't particularly changed. So I, I have exactly the same experience in my adult practice and uh, that, that the influence is much less direct. What's happened is as some regulations, particularly around the pharmaceutical industry, have tightened, um, some industries have sought to make money in other ways and particularly in the less regulated um, prescribed products. So borderline substances like specialist formula. But what we're also seeing is now exceptionally subtle and sophisticated ways of manipulating clinicians and instrumentalizing clinicians to sell product. 
So the, the, the area about which I know the most and have researched the most is this phenomenon, phenomenon of a cow's milk protein allergy, a, a, um, a slow, slow onset or non-IgE-mediated cow's milk protein allergy in an exclusively breastfed infant. And this is a situation where the conflicts of interest are um, extraordinary. So everything from the basic science research, the molecular mass spec evidence, that, that is all coming out of the Nestle Nutrition Institute, for example, or the Danone Labs. So all of that basic science research is industry funded, or almost what, what little of it there is. Then at the next layer up, the small number of clinical studies are almost exclusively funded by industry. And the studies aren't just funded by industry, the authors of those studies have further conflicts. Then those studies form the basis for guidelines, which of which there are many. Um, and the vast majority of guideline authors or the guidelines themselves are once again funded by industry. The information in the guidelines is then disseminated to patients through charities and websites that are either exclusively owned by industry or almost entirely funded by industry. And the information is then distributed to doctors by key opinion leaders funded by industry at educational events, almost exclusively funded by industry. And the uh, professional bodies that should be regulating all this, for example, the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, were at the time of writing the article accepting money from the industry that produced the products to treat the condition. So whilst in our microscopic experiences clinicians, we're no longer being taken on a skiing holiday by a pharma company, we are operating in an environment where uh, industrial influence is massive and was quite su subtle enough that you might not ever really know it was happening. Yeah. And, you know, as a sort of disclosure, I would say that for the drug rep meetings that my department has, I would say approximately 80% are milk companies. And yeah. of the e emails that I receive uh, asking me to take um, online questionnaires about products, 90% of them uh, about milk products again. So the the formula industry are doing, there's an interesting paradox within this story that the the whole market for the, the, the specialist formulas that have um, reduced allergen content to treat CMPA, um, that market is sort of tens of millions and it's expanded immensely. But it's not enough really to justify the uh, conflicts that I've just said. But what that diagnosis does is it creates a situation in everyone's mind where it is possible uh, that breast milk can harm a child. Uh, and it's, there, are, there are varying data on this, but up to almost sort of 20% of mothers now think that their child may have uh, an allergy or symptoms related to their breast milk. And so if you think of this from the point of view of uh, the manufacturer of a normal formula, having a condition extant in the world that uh, has the implication that breast milk may harm a child is certainly not going to do your sales any harm. Whether or not that situation has been deliberately created or consciously created is impossible to evidence. But um, it's an example there of, of a really sophisticated subtle piece of marketing where essentially you have a loss lead you may have a situation where you have a loss leader condition where actually you're not making very much money from specialist formulas 
but you are creating a national culture of anxiety around breastfeeding that helps you sell products that are worth globally um, a market. The market is is now north of $60, $70 billion. And certainly, I mean, this is purely anecdotally from my personal practice, the, the concept of cow's milk protein allergy. When I started my training, uh, clearly the concept was there, but the number of people who were presented or the number of babies who were presented as could this be cow's milk protein allergy has hugely increased so that it's just not something I would see as a trainee doctor. Now in my sort of couple of weekly clinics, I will see one or two children in every single clinic with a could this be cow's milk protein allergy. It, it, it has significantly changed. Yeah, and we. this is the the very peculiar thing is that all of our personal experience as parents and as clinicians, the, the other clinicians that I speak to who, who treat children or see children in an emergency room or in allergy clinics would all say exactly the same thing, that the epidemiology doesn't support, there is no epidemiological evidence to support the explosion in prescription. I think it's, it's important as well to say, biologically, is this a condition that plausibly could be affecting an integer percentage of exclusively breastfed children? Mm. And it's very hard to answer that question. But if we look at things like um, the vital studies that uh, estimate the dosage of an allergen required for uh, an allergic reaction, um, it, it, those figures and those numbers don't correlate in any way with the studies that report detection of, of cow's milk protein in breast milk. So, um, so that in order by, by various calculations, you, you might expect um, an infant to have to drink many liters of breast milk at a time to consume the theoretical minimum for an allergic reaction. And mm. So the, the basic science there isn't matching up with what we believe to be true about other allergies. The other thing to say is these, by training, I'm a molecular virologist. And so I'm perhaps better at reading the papers on the basic science. And, and the standard of basic science in, in this area is, is really terribly low. So no information, for example, is given. If you're using extraordinarily subtle techniques to detect cow's milk protein, you're using mass spec, for example, no information is given on area sterility or um, product collection. So in families where dairy is consumed, you will have trace quantities of dairy all over hands, nipples, objects. And so um, these small amounts that are detected may very well be environmental. So there are, there are really big problems with whether or not this is a biologically plausible condition. So, I mean, do you, I've certainly seen babies who have been formula fed who are screaming in pain covered in rash pooing blood we switch them to a sort of hydrolyzed formula and they are instantly better yeah. and and those babies i would buy as having yeah i think you've got a cow's milk protein allergy but one of the great difficulties of course is that if, if you sort of read the marketing and, and the way these products are sold often pretty much anything that a normal child will do such as not poo for a couple of days or have a lot of poos or vomit occasionally or a bit be a bit clingy or colicky they're all 
I guess, sort of sold as, well, mm, this could be a cow's milk protein allergy. And I think that's the, the, the great difficulty that we face as clinicians when you're faced with, uh, you know, very tired, desperate parents. Yeah, I, I mean, the the most commonly used milk in um, primary care, milk allergy in primary care guideline, the MAP guideline, uh, which has uh, the, the authorship is has a, reports a number of conflicts with industry, um, has as a symptom list quite a, a vague list of symptoms, and yeah. the only way. Part of the problem with generating any good research in this area is the only way of diagnosing the condition is to exclude milk from the maternal diet, um, uh, uh, resume breastfeeding the child, and keep an accurate symptom diary, see if symptoms resolve, and then reintroduce dairy and see if the symptoms return. And uh, I, I don't have any way of knowing other than, other than anecdotally the clinicians I've spoken to, but it's not very common if a problem has gone away for uh, a mother to reintroduce the substance that might be causing the problem, yes. just simply to check because clinically we want to be scientific. I would suggest it is extremely unusual for anyone to go through that verification procedure. And as a consequence, there's very little good evidence. No, I would completely agree. Uh, you, you know, you've got, you've suddenly got your happy baby back. Why would you want to disrupt that really? Um, what about so so some people might say well poor old pediatricians why you're picking on the pediatricians there's very little private practice there's very little money in pediatrics are you picking on the pediatricians or is it you know having done the other work with with adult medicine is, is do you feel like this you've achieved a balance there well i really hope i'm not picking on certainly not on pedi- pediatrics as a profession the the both the BMJ investigation and the television program leaned very heavily on expert and excellent pediatricians. Um, it's the program is more about saying, and, and the report is more about saying, we all of us need to be alive to the ways in which our product, our, our practice can be modified that we may not be aware of, even if we're intellectually aware, these, the influence can be subconscious. Um, and to be aware that I think industry will act Industry, I wouldn't even say I'm, I'm particularly picking on industry. Industry has a fiduciary legal duty to its shareholders to make profit. That is its stated uh, aim. And sometimes I think we all of us get confused that pharmaceutical companies exist to help patients or that the formula industry exists to help feed babies. They, they don't. They exist to make money. And that's not a problem. But that's why we need to keep uh, industry, I think, at really arm's length and this is a a discussion i had in great detail for example with um nina modi the ex-president of the royal college who i get along with very well but she has reported she's declared um a number of conflicts of interest and when she stepped down from being president of the royal college of pediatrics she joined a position on the scientific board of nestle now her uh, her she has given a number of reasons about why she does that, and she thinks it's important to work closely. I would see it from my work in a very, very different way. So I don't feel strongly that I'm right. I certainly don't think that pediatricians are worse than anyone else. But I think the cow's milk protein allergy story is a particularly lovely example of how, 
how industry can do something very sophisticated and very influential that until you really look hard, you won't be aware of. And I think from my perspective, one of the interesting things that came out of, of this was um, how much kind of traction this got amongst paediatricians, and particularly I think paediatric trainees on Twitter, who were then sort of contacting the college to say, why are you having your conferences sponsored by these milk companies? Um, and you, you, I certainly saw for a lot of the people I follow on Twitter that actually they gave the college a relatively hard time and the college responded in the end. Yes, I, the college did respond. Um, I suppose I should, I've got to be a bit careful what would I say here because um, th- there were a number of stars that aligned. We made a television program which uh, highlighted really objectively bad practice by these companies, that companies in violation of companies and NHS institutions in violation of the WHO code. And then uh, that was published in the national press. And then the pro- television program was turned into the BMJ investigation. Um, and uh, the college didn't budge and issued a sort of fairly bland statement. What then happened was the Royal College held a conference uh, in um, the Middle East and North Africa conference. And on the uh, publicity for that conference, they put uh, two sponsors that, according to their own due diligence process, uh, these two sponsors had failed to meet their due diligence process. Uh, criteria and so couldn't sponsor the RCPCH. And it was that really, coupled with the investigation, coupled with the pressure from the trainees who spotted that, that was not me, that I think forced the hand. Plus, the BMJ immediately after the investigation said, we cannot publish this investigation into the formula industry while it's still accepting money ourselves to promote these products. And so I think for the Royal College to change its stance actually took um not by any means just me but a lot of people applying a lot of pressure over a very very sustained period of time and it was in my view a little bit disappointing it didn't didn't happen earlier um especially because it was for the royal college were they declared how much money they were receiving and it was a really trivial amount of money it was under one percent of their annual income so it, it it felt like it feels to me like the the problem we can't regulate our way out of this problem. It's one of the difficulties we have with infant nutrition in the UK is that the conversation and the research is very much dominated by the industry that profits. And culturally, we all of us need to take, I believe we should take a step back from that industry and that culture change needs to be led by independent institutions. All the other institutions that would also influence that conversation are also funded by uh, or receive funds from industry like the British Society for Allergy and Clinical Immunology, for example, or the British Dietetic Association. So the Royal College wasn't unique. No. Um, I, I guess some people would say, you know, for, for conferences to happen, for people to get to conferences, we do need sponsors. So the, the, this, uh, the scientific conference, the ARCHEM, has a couple of uh, sponsors. Um, do you think they still have... A, a place should we get rid of sponsorship or and, and accept the consequence of that or where do they sit in your in your view i have to say having having done this and and 
this the work this investigation is now ongoing with other products other industries other companies i'm submitting various grant applications to keep doing this work with lots of far more experienced people um the as i do more and i find out more i i become more cynical i suppose about industry's motives and i think more and more that papers and authors and guidelines and conferences that are sponsored have much less value than much smaller things that are not sponsored that um you know at some point it becomes advertorial uh and so i i I would favor probably a position that would be quite unpalatable to some people in terms of i would really really severely limit um sponsorship and conflicts declaring conflicts paradoxically makes them worse i mean the, the first step we do need in the uk is mandatory registration of conflicts of interest that even in america in the united states they have a mandatory declaration we don't have that in the uk at the moment it's voluntary so we can't say how much um uk uk doctors who are on who are say the chair of a nice guideline committee um we don't know how much money they're receiving because they don't have to declare it uh if they did declare it, it probably wouldn't make the situation any different, but it would at least allow for uh, data and quantitative information to campaign for further change so that we, you can then start to say, well, if you if you have conflicts, it does appear to create influence. So um, I'd be pretty hardline. Yeah, I, I don't think sponsorship is, is very good and I wouldn't have anything so, sponsored by the formula industry, especially because we know the formula industry just have a very long history that's very well evidenced of um, – uh, not acting in the best interests of the children that they claim to be helping. So to kind of finish off then, in one of my other roles, one of the other hats I wear, is I, I'm a training program director for our foundation doctors, our brand new doctors, and our next cohort have just started today. Um, I'm pleased to say we had no drug sponsors during their initial meeting. Um but I guess from what you've found and discovered and, and experienced, for somebody who's just starting out as a, a brand new F1 doctor, what would you say to them about sort of industry and sponsorship and drug lunches and those sorts of things? So you brought up earlier the lack of pediatric private practice. So people need money. Conferences also need money. We all need money. Um, in my adult specialty infectious diseases you know we we don't have a wealthy patient group infections typically are uh, medical problems of the most marginalized and the most disenfranchised and and children are um, in that in that group of the least powerful people in our society i think change will never happen in terms of funding as long as we find our funding from other sources we will never make the effort to run a conference without industry funding until we say no to it and in terms of people's personal approach, I think getting your microethics right is really important. And I, I sit in a very odd position because I, as a as a media doctor, I have uh, been, which is a, a a shameful profession in a great many ways. I get offered really remarkable amounts of money to promote products. Some of them probably quite good, some of them extremely bad, and many of them just to launder the reputation of the industry who's who's promoting the product so i think that probably i i think that clinicians should really not get money from people who profit from 
the illnesses of the patients they are treating. I'm I'm pretty hardline about that. So I would I would uh, say if you're a trainee and you want to become a pediatrician, I would think very hard before um, entering into any partnership with industry. And I know this position makes me very unpopular with really close friends and uh, people who do industrial research projects. And there are problems, but um, I, I think keeping industry at an arm's length is that is the way that that we will get the most health progress for our patients. Chris, that has been extremely thought-provoking and I'm sure will prove controversial in places and, and will generate a lot of discussion on, on Twitter and social media. Um, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. It's a, a, a real pleasure and I, I look forward to the Twitter discussion resulting. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you.